1: few years ago now, not through planning or foresight, the episode Night of the Meek landed here on the Twilight Zone podcast at precisely the right time of year. And tonight, also without planning or foresight, the Twilight Zone has gifted us another timely tale. Tonight we'll meet Professor Fowler who is a teacher at the Rock Spring School for Boys.
0: Alfred Edward Hausman died in 1936. All of you will recall, I'm quite sure, a Shropshire lad, a little of which I'm now going to read to you. When I was one and twenty, I heard a wise man say, Give crowns and pounds and guineas but not your heart away. Give pearls away and rubies, but keep your fancy free. But I was one twenty. no use to talk to me. The heart out of the bosom was never given in vain. Tis paid with sighs aplenty, and sold for endless rue and I am two-and-twenty and oh, tis true,
1: tis true. Professor Fowler will soon learn that it's time for him to close the door on his past and as he does, so do we, bidding farewell to another season and another year. So, in many ways, it is time for the changing of the God.
0: Professor Ellis Fowler, a gentle bookish guide to the young, who is about to discover that life still has certain surprises, and that the campus of the Rock Springs School for Boys lies on a direct path to another institution, commonly referred to as the Twilight Zone.
1: First broadcast on the 1st of June 1962, Written by Rod Sailing and directed by Robert Ellis Miller. So a bit of a blink and you'll miss it Rod Sailing narration this time round, although originally as scripted it was longer and Martin Grahams Jr documents this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. So as written it was. What you've just seen is not just the end of a semester, it happens to be the end of an era. Professor Ellis Fowler, a teacher of literature, a gentle bookish guide to the young, is about to find a package under his Christmas tree, and not a pleasant one. He doesn't realise it yet, but after half a century of planting seeds of wisdom, and then watching the fruits of his harvest, he is to discover that he has come to the end of the field, and is about to be discarded and that the campus of the Rock Hill School for Boys lies on a direct path to another institution commonly referred to as the Twilight Zone. Tonight's director, Robert Ellis Miller, is a name that we haven't heard before on the Twilight Zone, and we won't hear it again, and it's always interesting to see how these one-time directors fit in with the overall vibe of the show. He was born in 1927, and we've actually only lost him a couple of years ago, in 2017. He was a New Yorker by birth, and at this time, he was doing the rounds on the television shows of the day, like Perry Mason, The Donna Reed Show, Dr. Kildare, and so on. But in the mid-60s, he moved over to features, for a while at least, and to some acclaim. Alan Arkin and Sandra Locke in his film Heart is a Lonely Hunter were Oscar nominated, as was Tom Conti in Reuben Ruben* in 1983. So clearly a director with some talents, and after moving into films, he never really went back to episodic television, but the majority of his later filmography were television movies, and he worked steadily until the mid-90s. Now, before the opening narration, Professor Fowler reads a poem which he called a Shropshire Lad, by A. E. Hausman, who was a British poet from the mid 1800s. But a Shropshire Lad isn't a poem in and of itself; it's actually a collection of poems, 63 to be exact, and apparently it's quite a pessimistic collection, and many of the poems are preoccupied with death but without the comfort of a religious connection, no afterlife to go to, and the poems themselves became very popular with musicians and have constantly been written into songs.
2: When I was one and twenty I heard a wise man say, give crowns and pounds and give. One and twenty, I heard him say again, The heart out of the bosom was never given in vain. Tis paid with sighs of plenty And sold for endless alone And I am two and twenty, And all oh, tis true.
1: Now one of the things that I love about this episode is there in that opening scene. If you just watch all of the small little things that Donald Pleasance is doing, the way he is constantly polishing his spectacles, taking them on and off, all these little mannerisms that he has, and then when he reads the poem from a Shropshire lad, he gets carried away with it, he gets lost in the words. And perhaps there is a certain amount of comment here about the life he didn't choose for himself. Because the poem seems to be concerned with not giving your heart away. And we'll find out that Professor Fowler isn't a married man. He lives a simple life where his profession is his main reason to exist. So did he heed the advice of this poem at one time... Or is it simply just a moment of reflection? Either way, it suggests to me that this is a teacher who isn't just in love with his profession, but his subject too. So what does a man do when the thing that his life has been built around is going to be taken away?
0: You can tell the trustees from me that old Fowler won't desert the ship. (laughs) No, sir. He'll stay at the wheel through fair weather and foul. Watch the crews come aboard and then depart. Professor. Come aboard. Professor Fowler, please hear me out. Hmm. The communication from the trustees was not a contract. As a matter of fact, it was a notice of termination. You've been on the faculty for more than 50 years. You reached the normal retirement age several years ago. We decided at our winter meeting that perhaps a younger man. If you could have been at that meeting sir you would have been very proud of the things said about you and your work a teacher of incalculable value to all of us but well youth must be served changing of the guard that sort of thing
1: a brief return to the twilight zone for liam sullivan as the headmaster who we all recognize from the episode the silence now of course professor fowler is devastated by the news that he has to take enforced retirement And he goes home to listen to the radio broadcast that he mentioned earlier on. And this is another detail of the character that I really like. The simplicity of his life. It's very appealing to me. A simple man with simple pleasures. He wants to get home for 5pm to simply sit and hear some music on the radio. And it's something that almost seems lost for us in this modern age just sitting and appreciating the music. So he's a man who has found his place in the world and is happy with it. It's an uncluttered, minimalist life. But at the center of that life is of course his profession and the removal of that has put him in crisis, reflecting on the profession itself and whether it was all worth it.
0: They all come and go like ghosts, faces, names, Smiles, funny things they said, or the sad things, or the poignant ones. I gave them nothing. I gave them nothing at all. Poetry that left their minds the minute they themselves left. Aged slogans that were out of date when I taught them. Quotations dear to me that were meaningless to them. As a failure, Mrs. Landers, an abject, miserable failure. I walked from class to class, an old relic teaching by rote to unhearing ears, unwilling heads. As an abject, dismal failure, I moved nobody. I motivated nobody. I left no imprint on anybody. Now, where do you suppose I ever got the idea that I was accomplishing anything?
1: Professor Fowler is of course played by Donald Pleasance, and he was born in 1919, so would have been in his early 40s at this point, but he is playing a man who I estimate is probably in his 70s. So I think this is one of the more successful character ageing exercises in the Twilight Zone, due to William Tuttle's makeup and Donald Pleasance's performance. So Donald Pleasance was born in Nottinghamshire, England, and his grandfather, father and brother all worked on the railways, and Donald too took up this profession, getting to the level of station master. But acting was where his heart was, and while working at the station, he would write letters to theatre companies looking for a way into the business, And this eventually paid off when he became assistant stage manager at a theatre on the island of Jersey. And this gave him the opportunity to take the stage, which he obviously did. But unfortunately, then came World War II and he became a pilot in the RAF but was shot down over France and was tortured by the Nazis in a POW camp and after the war he returned to acting and became a staple of British film and television, as well as continuing on the stage. And with a massive 237 credits to his name, he certainly was a hard-working actor of the day. And I've said it before about British actors on The Twilight Zone, but Donald Pleasance was a world-class actor, he was a craftsman. But you will see things in his filmography sometimes that aren't that great, And you think well why does an actor of this caliber do it but he is of that working class generation where whether you are an actor or whether you are a coal miner if there's a job there you take it because you don't know when the next one will be along and i'm sure it's not just great britain where that ethic exists but it's certainly part of that certain generation of actors So at this time, England still was his primary residence, but he was so wanted for this role that they flew him over just to do it. And Buck Houghton said in The Twilight Zone Companion, Pleasance was an idea of the casting directors. I'd never heard of him. Boy, damn the expense. We brought him from England. He was just wonderful in it. He's a very nice man. I have a feeling it was his first time in the country professionally, and while he was a thoroughgoing professional with a huge experience in stage and everything else, he was a little apprehensive of this whole experience, because he arrived on a given day, and five days later, it was all going to be over, so he had a lot to absorb, but Bob Miller is very together, and gave him confidence, and we were off and running. Buck Houghton said it was money well spent, and I agree. Now Donald Pleasance was known for his intensity, both in that piercing stare that he had, and in his overall performances. And it's what made him so in demand as a screen villain, and also gave him the required drive as the Van Helsing-like foil to Michael Myers in the Halloween movies. So it's a delight to see him bring that intensity to a truly good man whether it's the way he reads the poetry at the beginning of the episode and gradually lets himself get carried along with it, or the way he denounces his own worth and importance in that great speech that he just gave. Now in The Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickery very much praises Donald Pleasant's performance in what he says is a difficult role because it's wordy and cliched. Now it never struck me as cliched as such, But certainly there have been similar stories and similar characters. Goodbye Mr. Chips is perhaps one of the most famous ones. And it's also certainly wordy. And Donald Pleasance really has to carry the weight of the episode on his shoulders. But he makes it look easy. And I don't sit and think that this is a man in his 40s playing a man in his 70s. I'm just watching a craftsman at work. So top marks for Donald Pleasance. But as a side note he isn't the only professor fowler in the twilight zone multiverse and i am of course talking about twilight zone radio but this time the person who plays professor fowler is a familiar twilight zone voice let's see if you can guess who it is they come and go like
2: ghosts faces names smiles the funny things they did or sad things or silly ones or noble ones and i gave them Nothing. Oh, Mr. Fowler. But it's true, don't you see? I gave them nothing at all to protect them from the world. I realize that now. Poetry that left their minds as soon as they left the school. Aged slogans and homilies that were already out of date when I repeated them. Quotations so dear to me that were meaningless to them. Surely not. I was a failure, Mrs. Landers. I was an old relic that walked from class to class, speaking by rote to unhearing ears, unwilling heads. I was a dismal, abject failure. I motivated no one. I left no imprint. Now, where do you suppose I got the idea that I was accomplishing
1: anything? It is, of course, Orson Bean from the episode Mr. Beaver. so thankfully for him, he went from the bottom tier straight to the top. But unfortunately, our Professor Fowler isn't doing so well at this point, And he walks out into the snow with the intention of ending his life.
0: Well, Mr. Man, I wonder if you ever had any self-doubts. I guess not. Be ashamed. Die. Until you have one some victory for humanity. I have won no victory. Now I am ashamed to die.
1: Now Martin Grahams Jr. documents that while the story took place in Rock Spring, Vermont, the quote that Professor Fowler reads was the motto of Rudd Sailing's alma mater, Antioch College, and shortly after filming completed, Sailing accepted a teaching position there at the college and moved to Ohio to try and teach aspiring writers quality in literature and screenplays. But Sailing later told a reporter, Recently I completed a term teaching playwriting classes at my alma mater, Antioch College. I wasn't a good teacher. I went back there to find out what was the truth, and I found out. The truth was at home, and I should have stayed there. I think any of us who have heard Rod Sailing speak will find that quite hard to believe. But at the tolling of some unexpected bells, Professor Fowler goes back into the school, and we'll join him again in a moment because I wanted to mention another interesting aspect of this episode, which is the Christmas setting, which is used in quite a restrained way. So why set it at Christmas at all? it could conceivably have been set at any time of the year because it's not really part of the fabric of the story like it is in Night of the Meek. And I have a couple of thoughts on that. The first is that these stories of a person in some sort of internal crisis are quite traditional at this point. Obviously we have A Christmas Carol where Ebenezer Scrooge is in some kind of spiritual crisis if you like. And then, in It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey is having a similar crisis of self-worth, like Professor Fowler. But there's also something else that I think makes what we're about to see in a moment a bit more palatable for the Twilight Zone. Because in a moment, Professor Fowler will meet the ghosts of deceased pupils who he had a positive effect on when they were living. Now when I think of the Twilight Zone, ghosts aren't the first thing that come into my head. Robots, sometimes. Aliens, definitely. But ghosts, not so much. So I did a search online for a list of Twilight Zone episodes that feature ghosts, and I found an article by a gentleman called Rick Kennett, and I will post a link to that in the show notes, And he breaks it down to 16 appearances by ghosts in the Twilight Zone. So just for fun, and because there's not much trivia with this one, let's see if we agree with those appearances. And the first one he mentions is Judgment Night. Now, I don't really see that one as a ghost story. The people on the boat who are there for the purposes of the whole elaborate thing that's going on, I don't think they are the ghosts of who they were in life. And then the captain himself, I don't really see him as a ghost. I see him more as someone who is in purgatory. The next one he mentions is a passage for trumpets, saying that Gabriel is a ghost. And I would disagree with that one too, because Gabriel is an angel. So that's a completely different thing for me. Next, The Hitchhiker with Nan Adams. I guess we could probably go with that one. Yes, she is a ghost. Now the trouble with Templeton, are his friends and his wife who put on this elaborate show for him, are they ghosts? In a manner of speaking, I suppose, but I see that more as him going to wherever they are, into the Twilight Zone or wherever they may be. My personal opinion is that a ghost is more a visitation, someone coming to you. So it's a bit borderline that one, I'm not too sure. Then long distance call, we have the grandmother on the phone. I suppose, I suppose she is reaching out from beyond the grave, so it's, uh, again, she doesn't make an appearance though, but I can see why he's put that one on the list. Now the grave, with uh, the returned outlaw... I, I'm i not too sure about that one because we never actually see him and it's never actually confirmed that it is actually the ghost of this person who causes it all. It might just all be a coincidence so I'd probably cross that one off the list too. Death's Head Revisited, yep, ghost story for sure. The Hunt as well, kind of like the hitchhiker in the way someone dies and then they carry on living on air so I will give it that one. The Passersby, there's ghosts all over the place. Then there's this, the changing of the guard, definitely a ghost story. Then a game of pool. Is that one a ghost story? I suppose in a way it is, it's a dead person visiting someone on earth, So I have to go with that, I guess. I suppose it's because it's so untraditional in the way it's told, which is a good thing. But is it a ghost story? I'll have to maybe give it that one, yeah. And then showdown with Rance McGrew, is Jesse James a ghost in that? Well, I suppose so, but I don't think we need to give that one too much thought. Now he does mention some more, but as they are in our future here on the show, I stopped reading at that point. But it's certainly fun to mull these things over, and I will put a link to that in the show notes. And while I do disagree with some on the list, clearly ghosts did exist in the Twilight Zone, but it's rarely as straightforward as the spectral appearance of a ghost that comes to someone and then disappears. But that is what we'll get in a moment. So I think setting it at Christmas really eases this kind of story into the Twilight Zone and it makes it a bit more palatable. So when Professor Fowler goes into his classroom, he is visited by the ghosts of his past.
0: How's that again? So you're Artie Beechcroft. Why, so you are. I'd recognize you anywhere. Forgive me, but uh, what you're doing here, you shouldn't be here. Artie, you you were- uh... I was killed at Iwo Jima, sir. That's right, Professor. I wanted to show you this, Professor. It's the Congressional Medal of Honor. It was awarded to me posthumously. Very prideful thing, Mr. Beechcroft. Very prideful thing. And I am indeed proud of you. You were always a fine young man. fine young man. That's why I brought this medal to show you, Professor Fowler. Because it's partly yours. You taught me about courage he taught me what it meant. How
1: incredible. In the last episode, Rod Serling was very critical of it. So it's nice that this time he actually saw the value in this one. And Martin Gramps Jr. documents that Serling wrote to a number of critics and editors of trade columns and he said, I hope you will forgive my succumbing to the ritual and at least accept my motives as honourable. On June 1st, The Twilight Zone will wind up its third season on air with a production called The Changing of the Guard. It stars the fine British actor Donald Pleasance and is directed by Robert Ellis Miller. I think it is a poignant and moving story and is perhaps one of the best we've ever done on the show. I hope you have a chance to watch it and I am in complete agreement with Rod Sailing on this one. As we come to the end of season 3, it's hard to imagine a better season closer. In fact, I would go as far as to say that it's a shame that Rod Sailing didn't keep this one in his back pocket until the very end of the Twilight Zone and use it for the final episode. But of course, when that time did come, he didn't know that it really was the end and... And the Twilight Zone was always on thin ice anyway. He might have thought that this possibly would be the end of the show. But in the ideal world, I think this is the one that I would use as the final full stop for the series as a whole.
0: I've had time to think it over, Mrs. Landerson. and I really think I will retire. I've taught all that I can teach, and I wouldn't want the returns to diminish I do believe I may have left my mark. A few gauntlets of knowledge that I've thrown down, they may have been picked up. Be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. Well, I didn't win the victories, Mrs. Landers, but I helped others to win them, so perhaps in some small measure they are victories that I can share.
1: So here it sits at the end of season three. And there is some poignancy to having it here too. It is a changing of the guard in many ways. Some say that this marks the end of the Twilight Zone's most consistent and high quality period, which was the first three seasons. And I guess we'll test that as we go forward. But it is also the end of the involvement of the great Buck Houghton as producer. And it's interesting that in all the episodes we've done, there doesn't seem to be a hint of any behind-the-scenes friction between him and Rod Serling. This was a partnership that worked, and Buck Houghton's name deserves to be in the stars, in the dark sky of the Twilight Zone. And we will talk more about these changes when we get to Season 4. But what stays with me in this episode is that as the years went on after the Twilight Zone, this episode becomes very resonant when we consider sailing in the post-Twilight Zone years. A man who perhaps never really knew the full extent of how his work had touched people, or how inspirational his work truly was. He thought it would be forgotten, but now the list of creatives who have been inspired by him is endless, and here we are, dissecting and discussing it, 60 years later. So is Rod Serling unknowingly writing a future echo of himself here? I think there is definitely some element of that, and if he is, my only hope is that, in some part at least, and in some moments, whether it be from a kind word, or a letter from a fan, he experienced the fulfilment and satisfaction that Professor Fowler experienced at the end of The Changing of the Guard. This episode has immediately and firmly placed itself in the top tier of Twilight Zone for me. It's simple, poetic and sentimental without being overly so. Donald Pleasant is pitch perfect, and it shows us that an unspectacular life, quietly lived, is still a worthwhile life and the hundreds of gentle ripples that a person creates as they paddle their way through day to day are every bit as valuable, if not more so, than the ones who create that one big wave.
0: Professor Ellis Fowler, teacher, who discovered rather belatedly something of his own value, a very small scholastic lesson from the campus of the Twilight Zone.
1: I'd like to give a special Christmas shout out to the gentleman over at the Twilight Zone Vortex, which is one of my favorite Rod Sailing and Twilight Zone places on the internet. They do a great blog over there and I will place a link to it in the show notes because recently on Facebook they posted something from a Twilight Zone magazine and it's called My Most Memorable Christmas and it's introduced by Carol Sailing. And she says, Rod served in the 511 Parachute Regiment during World War II. When he wrote this, he was a young, newly returned home soldier. It is admittedly unsophisticated and ingenuous. But at Christmas, there's always room for a little extra sentiment. And I suggest that the story was not only addressed to the men of the 511th, but to all of us who approach this holiday season with hope and faith in the future. And Rod Serling wrote this, I'm writing this for a very limited audience, the 1800 members of the 511th Parachute Infantry Regiment, who spent a Christmas on a godforsaken mountaintop on late the Philippine Islands, 1944. It was a grey morning, carved out of grey clay and shadowed by fog. It was not just a time... It was a mood, the kind of mood that is part of the province of combat and never conveyed vicariously to the human being who has not lived physically with the tension, the violence and the anguish of protracted war. But the 1800 men I make mention of, they'll remember it. And they'll remember that morning. It came after a month of nameless dateless days in a month because war is like that. It is separated into moments of survival and the passage of time is unheeded except to chronicle the fact that some have lived and some have died. On this particular Christmas morning, the regiment had been committed for 31 days. They had marched up the jungle sides of a mountain to mop up what was supposed to be the defeated remnants of some scattered Japanese unit the remnants turned out to be a division in force and intact. The 511th got baptised in a ceremony that took one month of daily battle and desperate and constant hunger, until on the 24th of December, it had finally defeated its brave and desperate enemy to push on past the last block and survey Ormoc Bay on the other side of the mountain. A long line of men rested along the sides of the jungle trail, grey jumpsuits that blended with grey-covered beards, tired, inward-looking eyes that reflected nothing but the fog and the greyness of the morning. We had come up as fresh initiates in the art of war, and were now dirty postgraduate men, taught wisdom by the impatient teacher of conflict. We lay there with a resignation to the wet, to fatigue and to a neutral awareness that we breathed and could walk, and that ten miles down the mountain there would be sleep and food. A nineteen-year-old second Louis got up to his feet and spoke through the first beard he'd ever worn. All right, on your feet, let's move out. We rose. The packs. The ammo belts, the weaponry, all fused to us like extensions of our bodies. The weight so constant that it was all part of us, and we started to plod slowly through the ankle-deep mud, a long line of dirty bearded sameness. And then, somebody far up the line stopped dead, and there was a whispered message that went down past the ranks. Each man froze and held his breath, Because any whisper passed down from up front meant a machine gun, or a pocket of Japanese, or a mine trail, or any one of a dozen other reminders that there was a war here, and we were a part of it. But this particular message was nothing less than an incredible jar to memory, a reminder of a different sort. The whispered voice of the man in front of me said... It's Christmas. I continued to lift my feet up, one after the other, weighed down by the fifty pounds of equipment attached to a sparse one hundred pound frame. And suddenly, I wasn't aware of the cold rain. I wasn't conscious of the mud that clung. I gave no thought to the sick little ache deep inside the gut that had been with us for so many days. Someone had just transformed the world. Two words had just reminded us that this was the earth and this was mankind and that people still lived and we did also. It's Christmas. And then a scratchy, discordant, monotone voice way up in front started to sing, O come all ye faithful. Somebody else picked it up and then we all sang. We sang as we walked through the mud. We sang as we led the wounded by the hand and carried the litters and looked back on the row of handmade crosses left behind. We sang, O come all ye faithful. It had come indeed. The holy day. The day of all days. It was Christmas.